Did you know onions have many uses? Sure, there's nothing better than a fresh onion on a burger in the summer, or a basket of crunchy fried onion rings on the side with a frosty malt. But onions also have a lot of benefits that are often overlooked. Studies suggest eating onions may help reduce the risk of heart disease by lowering blood pressure, managing cholesterol levels, and reducing inflammation. The United States produces about 125,000 acres of onions annually, with California, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho leading the charge. Today, we travel to a unique region of New York in the lower Hudson Valley, just a short drive from the city that doesn't sleep. Helena Representative A.J. Castellini shares insight on how growers in this region produce nearly 292 million pounds of these root vegetables that are loved around the world. Plus, Jody Lawrence joins us from Nashville as we talk about how oil prices are going to impact growers this fall. Join us for this episode of Fieldlink. And welcome back to Fieldlink. Uh, we're excited to have AJ Castellini. AJ is a sales representative for Helena, working out of the Woodstown, New Jersey branch uh, in New Jersey, the state of New Jersey. Uh, AJ, welcome to Fieldlink. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, enjoy being out there. We don't get much. Uh talk about us over here in the New Jersey area, but there's quite a bit of farming here and I cover a lot of it. So it's a, it's an, it's an exciting time. So AJ, uh, certainly working out of the uh, garden state of New Jersey, but also covering a little bit of New York. Uh, tell us a little bit about you, AJ. Tell us, uh, where's home? Uh, home for me is actually, uh, right here in Woodstown, New Jersey. I live actually right outside of the branch about, uh, 10 minutes outside of, uh, the actual Woodstown location. And uh, I was actually born, raised in uh, the Vineland, uh, New Jersey area, which is a small pocket. Well, big for us, but small pocket of farming, um, all fresh market vegetable production in New Jersey, which, you know, we we cover a lot of crops and a lot of diversity there. Yeah. So you grew up uh, on an operation. I, I think you mentioned your whole family been been involved in agriculture for quite some time. Yeah, I'm actually a fourth generation farmer. Um, my great grandfather, uh, who actually my namesake, he uh, started farming back in the early 1900s, um, right around 1910, 1915 in that time frame. And we've been continually farming the pretty much the same exact ground um, for that entire time. You know, I've actually branched out out of farming, um, went to college, did all that and came back. And remember, the only thing I really know how to do is farm. So um, we got back into a little bit of farming, but mostly got into the production side. Well, AJ, tell us a little bit about the geography that you cover uh, in, in the New Jersey market and as well as New York. Tell us about that uh, area. The big thing about New Jersey is we cover a lot of different crops. We have about, ooh, I had an intern with me one year. Um, he's actually a branch manager now, but he uh, counted all the crops that riding around with me for I think about of a season. And I think he got up to about 130, 130 different crops, different crop groupings. And he, it's all fresh market and weird stuff that you would never imagine people grow and eat, but we do it here. And, you know, there's small pockets of it, but as a guy like me, it keeps it a lot, really interesting. 
really enjoyable because I never know what I'm going to get a phone call about. You definitely have to be on top of your game with that kind of crop diversity, don't you? Yeah, well, it takes a long time to understand it, um, understand what people are trying to grow. Uh, I have a funny story about my boss. Um, he went into that market a long time ago. He actually was our sales rep uh, when we were farming and he got into that market and uh, we grow dandelion, which everybody wants to kill. You know what I mean? But we eat it and people do eat it in dandelion salad around here. And the funny thing is he goes to a farmer and said, hey, and the guy said, hey, I need some recommendations on uh, dandelion. And he was like, well, yeah, 2,4-D, take it right out. You know what I mean? And he, uh, the guy was like, not to kill it. You know what I mean? I need to grow it to eat it. So that was always a funny story that, you know, a little culture shock for him. But that's what I was raised in and grew. You know, we didn't grow dandelion on our farm, but we grew a lot of different stuff. Wow. So it was enjoyable. Definitely a wide uh, variety of crops, certainly in that geography. You know, and again, I referenced earlier, uh, New Jersey is the garden state and for a reason uh, because of that crop diversity that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Uh, AJ, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, narrow things down a little bit. You know, you've got a wide range of crops, but one of the unique crops uh, that we all touch is is onions. And you're kind of the resident expert when it comes to onions. Well, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in anything, but um, yeah, I actually took on a territory um, about two years ago now, which I was always familiar with it just being in the branch and stuff like that. But I uh, took on a territory up in Orange County, New York which is a really, really interesting, uh, really cool place uh, in the Hudson Valley, lower Hudson Valley, um, that grows a bunch of onions. I mean, about 5,000 acres, 4,500 acres of onions specifically. But in that territory, there's about 14 to 15,000 acres in one spot. And when I mean in one spot, it is in a tight valley and the growers there have always been doing the same thing, uh, growing, but they didn't always grow onions. Uh, onions have been in the past, probably 35 years. They've grown onions there before that they grew a lot of head lettuce and celery actually is what they grew before that. But then, uh, the California market kind of picked up around that point and refrigerated trucks, uh, and all that. And so they kind of, uh, abandoned that market and then went into the onion market. Onions have really taken over that valley around Poughkeepsie. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that geography. How far is that valley from, let's just say for a lot of our listeners, New York City? Yeah. All right. Very, very close. Uh, It is 45, about 45 minute drive to New York City from that area. And the predominant market uh, used to be the, the New York City market. Um, now has expanded. It has expanded across the country. Uh, we go all up and down the East Coast, hit all the big markets, you know, the Baltimore market, the Chicago market, the Boston markets, um, all the way down south. And these guys are really producing onions for pretty much every onion that you guys see in any grocery store, any chain store, and also in a lot of the chain store restaurants as well. So uh, I'm, I'm sensing a wide variety of onions that are grown in that market, like Vidalia's or, or is, it, is it white onions? Uh, is it everything? Well, it's actually, it, it's um, specifically, it's really only two types of onions, actually. They grow yellow onions, 
um, and then they grow reds. Uh, there is some guys that are growing some garlic as well, but that's more for a fresh market type air, um, sale, you know, going into the green markets, as they call them, which are the farmer markets. And but the predominant production is yellow and reds. They try to grow. They tried to grow some whites, but they can never get them as white as they can out in um, out in Washington state and some of the other uh, more desert areas. They, they seem to be uh, so they kind of abandon that and stick with the yellows and the reds. So, AJ, I'm not very familiar with growing onions, and I think a lot of the listeners are pretty familiar with consuming them, but not necessarily growing them. Is there a difference on how we would approach raising a red onion versus a yellow onion? Um, not necessarily. Um, the nutritional needs are about the same. Um, the disease spectrum is about the same. Uh, the maturity is a little bit different. I guess it just depends on the variety as well. Um, reds usually go in and grow a little bit quicker than the yellows do. Um, but it just kind of depends. But for all in all, we take care of them about the same. Well, tell us a little bit about that soil profile. Uh, I, I know that area pretty well. I used to work out there, but tell our listeners about that pro- soil in uh, in that Hudson Valley. Well, it's a stark difference than what I grew up on. I grew up on beach sand, um, as they call it down here. It's a high phosphorus soil down here. And up there, it is absolute complete opposite. Now you're talking, it's called the Blackter region of the Hudson Valley. Um, it is a black soil, a muck soil, as they call it, um, 80 to 90% organic matter in that soil. And it is like walking on a sponge. It's, it's the weirdest thing you'll ever see. You can feel tractors a thousand feet away, away driving. It's, it's pretty amazing stuff. And you would think it's heavy, it is not. It is like it when it gets dry, it's like flour. And when it's wet, it's, you know, you can run on it within, I don't know, a day of getting an inch, two inches of rain. It's it's pretty amazing stuff. So but it does have its issues, you know, and and, and that's where we come in and try to help out with that. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, AJ. Uh, how, how do you interact with your agri-intelligence team and, and, and providing maybe some solutions for those onion growers in that type of market? Yeah, so if we could, the the biggest issues that they have um, with their soil, uh, there's there's two main issues. Obviously, water management, um, because the history of that place is it was a prehistoric swamp. So there's a reason why there is a lot of organic matter there. It just was a lot of, you know, 14, 15,000 years ago was a big swamp. And in the 1800s, late 1800s, um, a guy had a great idea to get the Army Corps of Engineers out there and build ditches. So they built ditches, drained the swamp, cleared the land. And so now they have issues with um, water. So everything is ditched. Everything's tiled. Everything is flat and evened out. Um, So they have water management issues, especially during big rains. Um, but the biggest thing that we face on my side is the fact that a lot of these guys, the organic matter is great for growing stuff, including weeds. So they have a big issue with growing weeds. So now what we've done on the agri-intelligence side is not only got into the water management and well water issues because we've been doing a lot of sampling there, and kind of doing a series of samples. And I can kind of explain why we do that 
and why we do a series of those samples. And then the biggest thing is with um, we haven't gotten high ground or anything up there yet because the soil isn't that variable. But we've been seeing a lot of issues with potash leaching and um, manganese issues with these crops. And it's been a a consistent thing throughout their history. It's just now we're better at taking tissue samples at key times to make sure that we're covering those issues. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I can imagine in that market, you know, water being pretty wide and, and varied. So util- utilizing tools like AquaLens to help better understand, you know, the quality of water that we're dealing with is very important. Right. And and a lot of those guys have uh, shallow wells considering, I mean, they don't have to go that deep to find water. Uh, the water table, I think, is uh, at any given time anywhere from, let's say, five to 20 feet. You know what I mean? It is right up there. Uh, big rains, it's down to six inches. But um, the shallow wells lead to a lot of issues. And we found that out uh, last year. I mean, granted, this is my second full season there. But last year, we ran into some issues because we've always buffered our water. But we were buffering either too much or too little, depending on the time of the year. Uh, this year, I took a approach where I'm going to take a water sample every month for five months in a row during the growing season. And we've actually found out some really interesting things by doing that. This is the first year and hopefully over the next couple of years, we'll get a really compiled data about it. But what we found was that the pH levels in their water and their hardness changes. I mean, and not just by 0.1, by one to two actual pH percentage points, depending on the amount of rainfall that we've had, uh, droughts, you know, that this year has been a wet year, but last year was a really dry year. So we ran into some issues with pH spiking from a normal, they have higher pH water around seven, seven, five normally, but we had pHs spiking around nine. And that's a big difference. You know, it's a huge difference when it comes to spraying, a huge difference when it comes to a lot of things that we're trying to mix in the tanks. Um, So we're trying to narrow that down to understand the best way or the best approach during these times. And uh, the growers are really uh, seeing that because, you know, they were like, "Ah, how much does it actually change? And we found out that it changes fairly significantly, fairly quickly. So, yeah, you know, uh, tell us a little bit, our listeners that are, again, not all that familiar with onion production. Tell, walk us through the season. How, how, how do you plant onions? Uh, how do growers in your area plant them? When when is harvest? Walk us through that whole process. Okay, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty standard. Um, there is a bunch of little uh, nuances when it comes to how guys plant and their own little specific uh, you know ways of doing things that work for them. But in general, the biggest thing that they do is they have they have two main ways of planting. They plant with plants that come out of Arizona that are grown in the wintertime and they're bare root plants. And then they also have cells, which are kind of the historic transplant cells that have a little bit of soil or a soil medium under them. And they usually come out of Canada. And then they also have direct seed. So there are three ways of planting. So they have a very specific way of, um, you know, how many plants per acre or per foot uh, to get the size that they're going after, because obviously, well, maybe people don't know, but big onions are the 
best onions. So they want the biggest onion they can possibly get. Uh, we call them jumbos. And they, that's an, I think it's above a three inch onion around. And that's where they, they're, that's what they're going for. That's what they're shooting for is those size onions. Um, so last year we had a great year with that. We were grading above 60% jumbos. Uh, the season was one of the best seasons that they've had in a long time. Growing wise this year is actually the complete opposite. So it's, um, so when it comes to planting, that's how they go. They do a lot of in furrow uh, with that, which I know it's surprising to hear people say that because that's more of a corn and bean type thing. But we put a lot of chemistry in that because as soon as those plants go in the ground, they're obviously targets for pests. And their biggest pest in that uh, area is maggots, onion maggot and corn seed maggot. So with the, actually the ban of a, a product called Lures Ban, we use that really, that was their kind of gold standard for, for those because it persisted in the soil for a little bit longer and it held them through the season. But now we don't have that. So we've been exploring a lot of different ideas, a little, uh, a lot of different, you know, insecticide uses, a little bit of softer stuff to see if we can really dial that in and with seed treatments and that kind of stuff as well, they do that as well. So we're just trying, that's kind of like where we're moving in that direction, trying to figure that out as we go along. Um, I've had a lot of steps, you know, in the right way and some in the wrong way, but we've, uh, it's kind of like an exploring for us trying to figure out what works for us. So that cover, that covers planting. Now, once the onions go in the ground, their biggest issue for the first about, eh, let's say, four to six weeks is weed control. So um, on those muck soils with the 80, 90 percent organic matter, they have a huge issue with herbicides and residuals because not only is the ground great for growing stuff, it's also great for growing weeds as well, but it's also like a sponge. So any residual herbicide that might work on my soil and I get two to three month, you know, control on certain weeds or weed spectrum, they do not get. They have to, they call them killing the pinheads. So they have to go out and use basically uh, residual post-emergent herbicides quite often just to keep the weed control down. Because if the weeds get out of control there, you might as well just disc up the onions because there's no point. So that's what we're fighting in season, the first part of that season, obviously taking care of um, nutrient management and stuff like that. Um, we use a lot of slow release nitrogen there, um, big shots of potash early on. Um, and then through that, after we get through that first six week spell, we're trying to obviously limit any fly production, any thrips and then disease. Um, they, they get a lot of disease in onions. Um, the biggest one being stemphilium is a big disease that they get there. They also get a bunch of other diseases as well, but we're working towards that later on in the season and start doing our fungicide sprays, start doing our insecticide sprays. So we've made a lot of grounds with that as well. We've been, uh, working hand in hand with Cornell up there because they have a really, really good team of um, pathologists, a really good team of like field scouts and stuff like that, that they 
like to work and they, we kind of work hand in hand and it's nice because they'll do trials and we'll, I'll bounce ideas off of their people. They bounce ideas off of me and we kind of work together to try to get to a solution, you know, for these guys. And we've come up with some and, you know, we're still working on a lot of them. Sure. Definitely an evolving area uh, as it relates to production and production management. Uh, and as you mentioned, there's probably a lot of different unique products that uh, can certainly, you know, enhance the growth of, of these onions. Um, AJ, talk to us a little bit about a harvest time, you know, planting. I'm assuming we're, you know, putting onions in the ground in May or late April. Is that pretty accurate yeah yeah around april um april may um it depends on what the season's bringing obviously uh we like to be done by the 15th of may that doesn't always happen you know just like anywhere else i mean we have water issues event issues gets too cold now we realize that it's really cold up there i mean even me being about two and a half hours away um the degrees are a lot cooler there. They have a lot colder nights. You know, they, they're about 10 degrees less than us here in New Jersey, about at about average. Um, but they have late season, you know, they spring frost all the way to the end of, you know, May, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? And, uh, and that's where you're starting to get, you know, you're starting to get some issues there. And that, that's actually what happened this year. We had a, a late frost and it kind of messed up some of the stuff. And, uh, you know, but it is what it is. We work through it. Um, some of the stuff that if I don't want, I don't want to get too far in, in into go into harvest because, you know, if I can try to keep it in the lineage a little bit. But um, a lot of the stuff that we're using to enhance production early on is in that inferro um, or they call it a drench. We call it in furrow. They call it a drench. But um, their drench applications, they historically put fertilizer with that. Now, we've been having a lot of luck over the years with uh, Asset RTU. Um, I'm kind of changing that up a little bit um, just as, you know, more just seeing what I can see. And, and, and I've made my actually own transplant solution or drench solution that um, is basically a mimics um, asset RTU, but it has double the amount of fertilizer in it for a relatively, you know, insignificant amount of more money. I mean, you're talking, I think, five bucks an acre more for it, but you're getting double the amount. And growers have really seemed to see the difference in that product as well. Um, so I'm just trying to bring value to them and value to, you know, us just coming up with something to differentiate ourselves and uh, make something for them. That's a kind of a custom blend. The other the other big thing that they they have issues with is manganese early on, just because of those soils. They're actually the opposite of my sandy soils when it comes to either leaching. So we leach nitrogen. Most people leach nitrogen. Um, in those soils, they, they don't leach that much nitrogen. That's not something that happens there, but they leach potash. So which where our soils hold potash, we can put potash on in the fall and have it there in the spring. They cannot do that. They have issues with potash and which in turn leads to, leads to manganese deficiencies as well because the potash is pulling that with it. So we put some uh, kickstand uh, MN in there. 
um, in transplanting and when we're doing that application. So that seems to help give us a nice buzz, you know, nice shot of uh, MN early on that's safe. Um, and it's really nice because that kickstand line mixes really well with other fertilizers and other chemistry that's going into those blends. So that's the, that's what we do for the initial start out. Um, I did mention the weed control issue earlier, but those weeds, um, they're just, it's just a problem with killing them. We're putting a lot of fertilizer on them, on those onions to get them to grow. And the soil is a great soil for growing. So the weeds just keep coming. So we're looking for issues. I mean, we're looking for solutions for doing that and doing a better job. So we use a lot of our surfactant lines, our HPGs. We use a lot of uh, induce and a lot of uh, dynamic up there just to help with that. But we really get into the induce more for fungicides. But um, one thing that my uh, predecessor found out was that adding Coron to a lot of these uh to a lot of these uh, herbicide applications really helps kill the weeds without hurting the plants. So, you know, you get, so when you're killing weeds and, and doing the things that you uh, need to do to, to manage that wheat, those weeds, we're also hurting the onions when we do that. So we're making secondary scars where we can scar them up. We can twist them up pretty bad. Uh, they tend to grow out of it, but we try to mitigate that as much as possible, keep the onions as healthy as we can while killing the weeds. So we use um, a lot of coron in that. We use like around two quarts to the acre when we're to a gallon is where we uh, go out there with to the acre with those herbicide applications to help penetrate the weeds, kill the weeds, but also not hurt the onions as bad. Um, and then we also follow that up with uh, Megafol and ENC, we use that quite often to help alleviate that stress, give it a little micros, a little micro pack there. And that helps seems to help green them up a lot, the onions themselves up a lot and kind of get them to work out of that, um, that stress from those herbicides. Yeah, that's a, that's a great combination when you, uh, you know, hit it with that Coron to, to get that growth, obviously, but then come back as you mentioned, you know, any herbicide is going to potentially impact a crop, but coming back with a megafol and ENC combination is a wonderful package to uh, alleviate a little bit of that stress for sure. Let's talk about harvest time. When does harvest take place uh, with onions? And- harvest is right now. Um, we started about a month ago. Um, you know, harvest is starting right now. So now is the time where, you know, let's see all of the fruits of our labor have actually paid off. Um, harvest is pretty interesting, um, out to, out there. There's a, they call it hand clipping, which is just hand picking those onions. They send guys out in the field if it's too wet or they think the onions can't handle being run through their, uh, machines. And the machines are basically a potato harvester. You know, they got a chain and they go out and lift them with another chain and then they'll come back and windrow them and then pick them up. Uh, that's, but the past couple of weeks it's been wet and the onions kind of can, they can bruise like an apple, you know, like if, if they get a, a dent in them or something like that. So they try not to do that. Uh, and hand harvesting is a lot easier on the onions. So they do that for a while. And then when the onions kind of harden off, 
they'll start doing the machine harvest, which is what they're doing right now. So August, September timeframe is harvest. Um, and I would assume there's certain grades and I'm, I'm not familiar with onions. So is there a grading process for onions? Uh, you mentioned bruising that can impact the look and that's going to impact, you know, whether that sits on a grocery store uh, shelf or goes into a different production. Right. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing um, with these onions is they're stored. So they're a storable product. And going into storage, they'll store them to January, February timeframe. And they have the uh, big storage areas um, in these onion, you know, and the, all the farmers have big onion storage areas and they have fans blowing them all, all the time. But the grading process is mostly sizing. So they'll, what they'll do is they'll run a field run and you're going to get, you know, whatever, jumbos, mediums, smalls, you know, throughout that the first process of grading is going to be separating them out. So the first process they run, they run over chains and the chains are all various different sizes. They shoot them out into different bins and they get, and then they store those bins according to those sizes. So then after that, or, you know, while they're doing that, they're also checking for quality. So they're taking out any rotten onions, they're taking out any damaged onions. um, And then they're kind of, you know, going back and putting up a good pack in a box, a big box, um, like a like a tote box and storing them. So they've known they're they're sized and graded at least once. And what they'll do before actually putting them in the bag is go and resize them again. And then they'll also regrade them for quality again. And sometimes they'll even do that a third time because as they store some break down. So they'll just they'll keep doing that until it actually gets into a bag. So most of the time it's around three, um, three times they go through that grading sizing process. Um, sometimes four just depends on the year and depends on the onion. So this year, uh, this being a wet year for us, they're going to have a bigger and harder grading time just because the quality isn't, you know, what it was last year. That's a lot of handling, uh, a lot of management, clearly. Uh, but, but AJ, where do these, you know, you touched on earlier, your predominant market, it's right there on the coast, but it, it, it does stretch out, as you mentioned, even to Chicago uh, from, from New York State. Are these grocery stores? Are these restaurants? Where do the onions really end up at the end of the day? Well, they, they end up everywhere, <laughs> which is, is funny. Um, you know, it depends on the grower and it depends. Some growers are also uh, onion packers as well. So they pack throughout the year and to satisfy those customers, there's customer needs, they're, they're, they're doing stuff throughout the year um, to, to satisfy that. Now they're going to every grocery store that you would probably shop at. I mean, they're going to uh, ShopRites, uh, they're going to Acme's, they're going to Costco's, BJ's, um, Publix uh, down south. They're going to Pretty much everywhere. I know a couple guys have restaurants and big chain restaurants uh, like Chipotle. Um, they're going into the big uh, New York City markets for fresh market. Um, they're going to restaurants in there. Um, you know, all basically all these that shopping uh, that they're they're getting around. So um, you know, not many go for export like into Canada, uh, but they do get dispersed out. Mm, pretty much across the United States, uh, um, you know, and when the Western states, um, just caveat too, is 
There's a couple other big grow, onion growing areas in this in the country, Washington State being one, Idaho and California, um, New York being the one on the East Coast that predominantly deals with uh, these onions. So, you know, they have they have a working relationship with each other and they, you know, a lot of guys go out west to buy stuff and a lot of guys out west buy stuff from them. It just depends on the season. Um, but, you know, the big thing is on the East Coast, there's a lot of people. So out west, there's a lot of people in certain areas, but it's more spread out. We're really concentrated and we have a big market for, you know, locally in the New York and basically the major cities um, around that New York state area. So they come down to Jersey, they come down to Philadelphia, they go over to New York, they go to Boston, Chicago, Baltimore. You know, they're they're running these onions pretty much everywhere. So, AJ, let's fast forward to, you know, we're in season now. What are some of the activities? What's happening in that onion crop in season? So a lot of things that we're trying to manage uh, in season are insects, especially thrips, obviously onion management. But the biggest issue that we're seeing is disease management. Now, the big disease, the big uh, disease that's been around for the past, um, I'll go on, on 10 years, is uh, stemphilium. And stemphilium for them is a disease that comes in and basically rots down the, a single leaf all the way into the bulb and creates just a mush of onion. And it can be pretty detrimental disease. So one of Cornell actually came up with a, the product and luckily or we produced that product. It's called Biathon, which is a mix of, um, you know, phosphoric acid and, um, tebiconazole. So that seems to be really carrying weight with us throughout the season. So we're trying to do this uh, application at least twice. And that, cause that's what the label limits us to We're we're only allowed two shots at three pints. And so what we, when I actually came up um, and started thinking about is, well, the tebiconazole is what's limiting our applications of the product let's see what a trial looks like if we use that phosphoric acid, which is our profite or Reveille in multiple applications. So what we do is now is uh, we had Cornell do the trial last year and they came back with really, really good results um, that using adding profite to your mix with any of your other fungicide applications really increases uh, efficacy on the, on the disease itself. So that's kind of been a, now that's become a grower standard with uh, the production. So we're trying to get, um, you know, an additional maybe three sprays with this profite, sometimes depending on the year, sometimes four um, included with those two shots of Viathon. So that's been a really, really big uh, step forward for us for that disease. Wow, that's awesome. So as you kind of evolve then towards the tail end of the season, uh, getting closer to harvest, what are some activities taking place then? If, uh, if you've ever been around an onion field, uh, if you've seen them in pictures, they only show you the ones where they're big and tall and green. Um, but late season, what those onions do is that they actually flop over. They actually lay over, and that's actually when they put on the, a lot of their size. So the onion will stop taking up a lot of nutrients. Uh, that's kind of going, it pulls everything out of those leaves and sucks it down into the bulb. 
So the leaves actually turn white. They just like it removes everything from them and it goes down in the bulb to make size. So what I've been playing around with and I have an official trial and we'll see how that uh, actually turns out. We're going to do a lot of the grading and stuff, but we've been using the product K-Leaf Versa um, before the onions flop. So before they actually go into that stage, but we, we can kind of time it and we do one shot at two quarts to the acre early on in that like late season flop, like right before that's about to happen. And then we do it two weeks after that in another shot um, of two quarts. So what we're hoping to see there is that that additional potash uh, with these soils and how they leach potash is that additional late season potash um, will increase the size of these, of, um, of these onions. So it's kind of, something that we do in a lot of other crops. We do it in potatoes. We do it in uh, soybeans, you know, for that late season potash. But we're trying to carry that over into onions um, and see exactly what that does. Interesting. There's a definitely a lot of, uh, you know, I guess science and art to growing these particular uh, onions. Right. And and the, the funny thing is um, we, we counter, we, we do both science and art, but when it comes to vegetable production, um, in general, we look for quality. I mean, because, you know, the customers want to eat quality products. I mean, when you go to a grocery store or you go anywhere to buy vegetables, what do you look for? You look for stuff that's dark green, that looks good, that smells good, that has, you know, no surf, you know, no issues on that. And so what we're trying to do is always increase quality, obviously increase production and size at the same time. But increasing the quality is kind of the art portion of this, um, you know, so we're always trying to play around with different uh, foliar nutritions, different uh, mixes of different things to increase, you know, color, to increase size, to increase overall rigidity of the plant. So we, we kind of balance between those two things um, at all times. So, you know, and that's kind of learning from coming from the farm and being in the vegetable production side of things, the fresh market veggies is mixing a couple of the HPG products together can really get some really good results with, you know, greening up stuff, making it look that deep, dark green. And that's really what sells the product. Yeah, appearance is definitely an important part for the consumer, uh, especially when you're dealing with higher value added products. AJ, you know, like a lot of different crops, there's always unique trends. What are some, I guess, some of the trends that you're seeing, your growers are seeing as it relates to onions? Is there a bigger demand or a growing demand, for example, for organics? Um, yeah, there always is. Um, I mean, uh, the organ I've been in this industry for going on 12 years, uh, on my side, obviously farming before that. Um, but over the past 10 years, over the past decade, really, I mean, it's been around for quite a while, uh, the organic, uh, production. And I deal with a lot of organic production in my, um, New Jersey markets. Um, we do deal with a lot of, uh, organic guys there. Um, I have some of the bigger guys in the state. And, um, you know, that is a trend that we're seeing. Um, now, if you go to farmers, farmers don't necessarily like to change that much. So it's usually forced upon them um, to change. And but they're seeing it. And some of those guys and more progressive guys are kind of going that way. Um, we're seeing we're trying to do a lot of different stuff with uh, fertilizers. 
and a lot using a lot more organic sources of fertilizer. We use quite a bit of uh, pelletized chicken manure in our production, not necessarily in onions, but um, in my other stuff. And, you know, the need, it's really the, the thing about farmers is farmers will do what the market is telling them to do because they're, they are, they're going to just move with it. Now, regulation um, and stuff like that has, um, you know, kind of forced their hand a little bit in some regards, but, you know, the nice thing about it is we find solutions and the solutions, usually once we figure them out, they might take some time to figure out, but once we figure them out, they actually work better in a way that, you know, that the other stuff might've been hurting the crop or stunting the crop in a way where these newer products and the newer things that we're using don't do that. Now trying to convince a grower to do that, you know what I mean? Because his grandfather did that, you know what I mean? Is, uh, can get a little bit, uh, can get a little bit, you know, hard to do, but for the most part, um, there we're seeing them. We're trying different products into these markets, uh, into onions. We're trying a couple new biologics that have some really big merit. Um, so really good merit and we're seeing, uh, results with them and it's not necessarily, they, they have to hold their own. So they have to be a good product in general, um, from at least for me to recommend them because, you know, I don't want to recommend something that's not going to work, but we see that. And, and the biggest thing that I'm seeing is the compatibility with some of the other conventional fungicides or insecticides that we're using. We're basically alleviating some of those compatibility issues. So it's actually making it easier for these growers to do what they need to do and fit the things in the tank that they need to fit. So we're actually, uh, you know, making a, we're still getting the same results that we would have with some of the other products that we would use, but we're allowing ourselves to not have the issues that we're seeing with mixing some of these products together and phyto issues and, you know, compatibility issues. So that's, that's a big win for, for that direction. So we're, we're, we're excited to explore whatever comes out, you know, and, you know, we're, we're trying to implement it as best as we can. Yeah, we're excited about that too. You know, we're launching a new brand here this fall called Sonics, and I know you're going to be a part of that uh, launch, AJ. You know, those are the kind of products that are, you know, potentially going to be a nice fit for, for, for that type of grower. Right. Yeah. We're excited to see this new product come out. I mean, at least I am. I mean, in my world, uh, you know, I deal with 100% organic guys and I deal with 100% conventional guys. And the funny thing is uh, about 10 years ago, if you went to a conventional guy and something had an Omri label on an organic label, they just walked away from it. They said, well, we don't need that. But now there's what I'm seeing. The biggest trend I'm seeing is that a lot of these products have become very acceptable in both practices, um, which is great because it leads to, uh, you know, actually they lead to a better farming, more sustainable farming um, down the road. Uh, we're not beating up the ground as much, um, you know, and then be honest with you, we're coming out with a better product on the other end, you know, um, in, in my opinion. So, yeah, definitely. It spreads out the risk, too, of, you know, the ecosystem having a little more diversity instead of hitting, you know, the same chemistry year after year after year. We can spread that out and and utilize, you know, certain chemistries when we really need it in, in different spots. So, 
AJ, uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank you again for joining us here today on FieldLink and, and helping us better understand uh, farming in New Jersey and New York specifically, talking about onions and educating us not only as producers, but also as consumers of those products. And thanks all that you do to help uh, agriculture continue to grow. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate the time that you guys set out for me. You know, if anybody wants to reach out to me, they can. So I'm all over the place. Uh, so thank you and I appreciate it. Thanks, AJ. And now we travel to Nashville to catch up with Jody Lawrence. Jody, quite a lot going on in the grain markets right now. Uh, certainly a, a lot of things impacting from the global side. We've talked a little bit about Russia and uh, some of the China uh, supplies, as well as the BRICS uh, situation, meaning uh, I, uh, India, China, and Brazil all kind of teaming up. Um, not to mention crude oil hitting some highs here. Jody, uh, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be back. Hope everybody had a good long Labor Day weekend as we kind of bid adieu to the summer of 23. But uh, yeah, a lot going on and uh, hit start with the last thing that you mentioned. Crude oil is beginning to, uh, has moved out to new two-year highs and the energy sector along with it when you look at diesel. You look at unleaded gas and natural gas is now starting to break out a little bit. And all of those things, obviously, you're looking at input costs and what could be for, uh, you know, upcoming fall fertilizer and then uh, planting 24 needs. So, and I'm keeping a particular eye on on nitrogen prices as as natural gas affects that. So it might uh, certainly be a good time right now, right before you start uh, getting uh, having to work 24-7 during harvest to do a little work on talking to your salespeople, figuring out what the prices are. And if you're on the wholesale side, filling up a couple sheds, probably not a bad idea. And if you're on the production side of it, uh, getting uh, some really early prepay done uh, before we know what inevitably can happen as you head into the winter, uh, like we saw uh, since the Ukraine invasion, when, if natural gas decided to take off and uh, certainly could add 20, 30 percent to price without without much issue, then that would uh, you know it cuts into those margins, and especially when you're looking at December 24 corn, just barely over $5. We're going to have to have some sharp pencils for 2024. Yeah, Jody, you know, uh, as we take a step back and take a look at the overall uh, supply for energy, um, the U.S. keeps depleting, you know, that reserve. Uh, but, you know, hoping that, uh, you know, that will impact, you know, the overall uh, price at the pump, if you will. But that's really not turning out, is it, uh, as Saudi Arabia decides to shut their spigots off? Yeah, we, we're caught in a in, in a battle with, uh, you know, normal U.S. consumption that it was one of the rare summers, uh, and certainly since uh, we've reopened for COVID, where there were less miles driven this summer in the last study that I saw of it. So you do have some decreasing U.S. demand, and obviously China's economy has not caught the traction yet with their uh, economic stimulus pass packages and their changes to COVID policy since the beginning of the year. Uh, but uh, Saudi Arabia and OPEC have the, the giant hammer in this if they decide to trim production. There's not a lot everybody else can do because due to you know EPA regulations, very difficult for the U.S. to just go 
you know, to make up a like amount to keep, you know, prices level. So it's uh, the energy thing is something I'm going to be watching closely through the fall and winter. And obviously that bleeds over into costs and expenses for just about everything else. That's right. And, uh, you know, every consumer is feeling that at the pocketbook as they pull up to the pump for sure. Jody, uh, weather continues to be pretty warm across most of the U.S. Uh, We had some record temperatures over the last week or so continue to impact at least uh, what could be some top end yields. Um, what are you picking up from your customers as you chat with them over the weekend? I got a few emails and texts over the weekend, especially when you start talking about Western Corn Belt and, you know, similar situation to last year. If you take the Western Corn Belt, basically is from Des Moines West and you start getting west of Des Moines and their crop is not it, in Nebraska, uh, the Dakotas, Kansas, not finishing well. Uh, this is going to end up being, uh, in several areas, even a drier and hotter year than 2012 was. And early harvest, dry down, kernel depth, all of these things that uh, will figure into final yield uh, test weight for the uh, how the USDA moves looking forward that we could really start harvest a lot earlier than everyone expected. And I've had a couple of people tell me that they'll start about the same time that they did for 2012, which is uh, crazy to me to think that we still have, due to the improved genetics and practices and everything, that the USDA is still firmly holding over a 170 yield when the yield in 2012 was 125. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting. I, the, difference this year. It looks like the bean crop's going to hold up a little bit better uh, than it did, but certainly this hot, dry stretch, this flash drought to end the season since the middle of August in the record heat, if you bookend how this crop started and how it's finishing, you certainly uh, understand why the crop ratings are so low and that the USDA could be uh, be giving us a shock as they get into their October and then January final reports. Not expecting too much on the September 12th report. I think that's a, a week from today. And there'll be several private estimates uh, out this week. I think StoneX will be out with their first one. Uh, certainly, uh, corn yield moving back down under 173 seems uh like the most obvious guess, whether they take beans under 50 bushels an acre yet is unsure. But the thing that the pro farmer tour made an assertion about was that there were 600,000 more acres of corn than what the USDA reported in their June 30th report. Uh, So I will be closely watching that because if the USDA comes in and sticks with their numbers that they've gotten from the FSA and everybody else who uh, accumulates data for them, that if that number stays right you and they trim it by one bushel, you immediately take out, oh, let's see, uh, you know, that'd be 85 million just on the one bushel and then 600,000 acres that, uh, you know, just call it 170, there's, you know, just between those two cuts, you could easily trim 500 million bushels off and nobody would be terribly surprised. And that would certainly build a base under 
prices as we're sitting just here dragging along, uh, you know, between 480 and 490 on December 23 corn. Uh, talked to several other people, uh, analysts uh, in this business I've known a long time. And at the beginning of the year, had you told us, yes, this is potentially a 172, 173 crop and an under 50 bushel beans, we would expect it to have much higher prices, corn much closer to six and beans well over 14. But that's just not the way the market is reacting right now because you just have what is seemingly, uh, it, it's opaque on how big their crops are. But when you look at the record production that, it, that came out of Brazil in both corn and beans and Russia and wheat, they're still selling their record harvest from last year, just as they're on the verge of planting another one, uh, you know, potentially record crops. So a lot of competition for demand right now. And what we need to see, the biggest thing is I saw another sale probably to China of beans this morning, but everybody needs to see China's economy begin to really, uh, really fire back up because if their economy comes back, their demand will come back right at a time when we need to, when we need it. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not very, it's not being very public, but it sure feels like the economy in China for the average Chinese person, it's, it's not great. Uh, The demand uh, at the home front there, uh, they're having tough times over there. Yeah. The food inflation, when you've got rising inflation for your basic necessities and a slow economy really puts, uh, you know, just really puts a pinch on everybody. And it, I will be curious, China has always been historically very good at being able to get their population fed and control internal inflation. But uh, this year they're just having a little more trouble because they're battling a poor economy, uh, some bad decisions uh, during COVID, and just expectations are not being met on how quickly those stimulus packages were going to rebound the economy. Yeah, you know, the average diet in China has definitely shifted over the last 20, 30 years, and their hunger for protein is very high compared to what it was traditionally. So certainly going to create some chaos in in that market as well. Jody, speaking about the global side of things, uh, BRICS was just recently, uh, that, that, that took place. Tell us a little bit about BRICS and what kind of yeah, results that might impact growers in here in the U.S.? Well, BRICS is the acronym for the summit and the alliance between Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And obviously, we've already spoken about Brazil and Russia from a competitive standpoint. And when you talk about India, we've not mentioned that they are banning exports of uh, wheat domestically that they grew and also rice. So when you talk, you know, you look at the big picture of where everybody lives these days, uh, you've got nearly, you've got over 3 billion people between China and India, with India growing and expected to pass China as the most populated country within the next decade. And India has to be involved in this alliance simply, they sh- first of all, they share a border with China from a safety perspective, but they're also looking ahead at the same issues that China was thinking about 15, 20 years ago when they got Brazil in their back pocket to be able to produce all of the 
corn and beans that that they needed to help feed their population. So India is getting involved in this with Brazil, with Russia, to go where the the biggest availability of extra bushels is going to be. And that's why, while India may not seem like an obvious fit, because they are a democracy, although their dietary uh, kind of balance is certainly different on a protein side, since they are not generally a, a, a meat-eating uh, country, that you have India uh, in political discussion and w- with both Russia and Brazil and China that makes everybody in the, in the U.S. when you start talking about the big picture uh potential problems of their alliance coming together that the U.S. would have to figure out a way either to dramatically improve relations with Russia and China, but also be able to uh, compete, uh, you know, at a level with Brazil without Brazil just continually expanding by millions of acres every planning season. So the BRICS thing is going to be important to watch. It's definitely a story that's become more important over the last uh, two to three years. And just it, it's something that, you know, it, if you are politically involved, keep in touch with it, you know, write some letters to your uh, to your uh, congressmen, uh, congressmen and women that, you know, we need to improve relationships with those countries so that we can improve our exports. Because it's like we talked about earlier, you look at the dismal export pace for corn, uh, even as we start a new marketing season on September 1st for corn and beans. But last year's, you know, was nearly 750 million bushels below expectations. And that number, if it carries over for a couple of years, uh, you know, you've got some a whole lot of stocks that somebody's got to get rid of. Yeah, definitely a, a group that we really do need to keep an eye on. And, you know, that goes to the fact, too, you just think two of those countries that are part of that alliance, India and China, you, you mentioned earlier, three billion people. There's nine billion in the world. That's that's a 33 percent of the population around the globe are sitting in those two two regions. And that's certainly going to drive demand for whatever crop it is. Yeah, it's just you, you can't ignore who your customer base is. And increasingly, it is uh, going to be uh, every, you know, it's going to be Asia and we're going to have to be able to address it. And while we're in good relationship with India, we also have to realize that they have food inflation and they have uh, their priorities going to be feeding their population at the cheapest price or the lowest price possible. And they they will be, if their uh, consumption con- continues to outpace their production, they're going to have to develop a closer alliance with both Russia and Brazil 
to be able to control their food inflation. Jody, want to uh, thank you very much for joining us here on this episode of FieldLink and bring us up to speed on some of the global front as well as uh, some of the local markets here in the U.S. All right. Thank you, Bill. It's always good to be on. And uh, we'll do a follow-up to the September 12th report. We'll have a lot to talk about the next time we get together. You bet. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of FieldLink. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Thank you.